0: in prayer father thanks for this day you've granted to us open our minds as we study your word that we may understand its truths thank you for this opportunity to be here at your house to worship you and pray that we would uh, go away renewed and recharged and having met you here father thanks for this time again in Christ's name amen um, we've been working through the doctrine of sin last week we really did the introduction how many people did their homework this week
1: this how many people
0: did all their homework where they missed a day or two? I didn't
1: I it. I didn't but you read it. Read it. I read it. I read it.
0: Okay, you read it. Okay, all right, good. Last week we were talking about what sin was, and we um, basically made the point that a lot of times when we think of sin, we think about lists, things we can't do, things we can do, um, things we didn't do that we should have done, things we did that we shouldn't have, things like that. And uh, really, although there's an element of truth to that, there's certainly things that God has commanded us to do. Really, sin is not as much the violation of a code as it's violation of a relationship, a relationship with God. And it's interesting because I I remember for many years I read uh, the verse in First John: "If we love Him, we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous." I often read that and I said, "I don't understand what that verse is meaning." His commandments are not grievous. And uh, one day it sort of hit me when I started really contemplating this, that really what it's saying there is that if you love God, right, if you love Christ, if you love God, what are you going to naturally want to do? Keep, keep his commandments, right? And because of that, are his commandments a burden? No, no because you love him right it's the same thing in a human relationship. if I love my wife, the things that make her happy are not a burden to me, right because I want to do them because it brings joy to her, so it's not like, oh, I gotta pick my clothes up and put them in the hamper again, she'll nag me to death no it 's because i you know I love her, I want to please her, and so you do those things naturally that bring joy to the other person and that 's the same thing with God if we love God as the lawyer. Said, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you're going to want to do those things that please Him. You're going to want to bring joy to His heart. And those things that He says that brings joy to His heart are things that you're naturally going to want to do, right? You're naturally going to want to do them. It's not going to be a burden like, oh, I have to do something I really don't want to do. It's going to be a joy. And that's sort of what we see in Psalm 15, and that's why I had you read this psalm. Um, This week, let's look at this psalm, Psalm 15. And uh, the question that David asked, it's a very short psalm, five verses. And um, I've been nagging the pastors to preach on this, and it hasn't worked yet. So maybe someday, maybe next summer, the summer after, the summer after. There's 150 psalms. So I think they've done about 20 of them so far. So theoretically, at some point, we're going to hit this one. Um, But anyways, the question... Is asked by David, Oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? What's the question? What's he asking? Huh Of doing what? No, not not in this context. I mean, we understand that's the big
2: in His presence.
0: Um, this is a nomadic culture, right? Right? So where did you live for the most part? Tents. Alright. So if I'm going to come over to your tent to visit you, right? What kind of person do I need to be? If, and, and this is the thing that's talking about here. God. If, if I'm going to go visit God's tent, if I'm going to go over and visit Him, if I'm going to sojourn in His tent... And the idea of sojourn there is I'm going to come visit him. I'm going to come visit God. I'm going to go over to God's tent to visit him. Who can do that? Who can go into God's tent and visit God? And, here's the question, who can dwell in his holy hill? What's that concept? Yeah. Who can visit with him, but who can stay for a long time with him? What kind of person is it that can go into God's presence all right, and enjoy time with him? That's the, that's the concept here. Now, what is the one thing you know about the Old Testament? What did God make very clear in the Old Testament? Not everybody. Not everybody. In fact, no one could come into his presence unless they came the right way. And in the Old Covenant, God, of course, made a way in the national um, ceremonies, the, the religious ceremonies on the Day of Atonement, when a high priest went in once a year to take blood into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle it on the altar between the cherubim. God's saying in the Old Testament, I'm holy, you're not, you need to stay away from me. So then the question is, how is it that the psalmist is asking, who can come into your presence can dwell in their holy hill it's a character question what is it that enables a person to come into god's presence and enjoy that presence the idea here of going to someone's tent is not to just visit on a formal thing it's to to communicate with them when you shared a meal in that culture there was a a deep connection it was a social thing um, it was not just going over and grabbing a buffet or something and heading out the door. It was much more than that. And it indicated that there was some kind of relationship between the two parties. And what the David is asking here is, who, what kind of person can come into God's presence and fellowship there and be comfortable there? That's the other idea, to be comfortable. All right. Now let's think about this a minute. Think of your close friends. Okay? What do you know? What, what, how do you determine who a close friend is? Well, someone you trust. You spend a lot of time with them. Why do you spend time with them? You're comfortable with them. Why are you comfortable with them? You can be yourself. And, and that implies what?
1: Trust.
0: You have the same values, right? You share the same heart. You, you, I hang around people, okay, that like the things I like, right? I mean, that's the kind of people you look at your close friends. You know, if you if you have someone, you know, if you, if you're a Mac user and they're a IBM user, and if you. You know, watch DVDs and they watch videotape and you like Mexican and they like Chinese and they can't stand Mexican and you know, go on and on and on. There's a certain sense in which you're not going to be close friends with them. But, those are perfect, but, but there's a comfort level, right? You know, hey, let's go out to eat. I want to go to Chinese and I want to go to Mexican. I can't stand Mexican. I can't stand Chinese. And there's no commonality. Or, you know, they like football. You like baseball. They like to jog, you like to ride a bike. You hang around, look at your close friends. For the most part, those people that are closest to you are people that share a lot of your common preferential values, but that's what makes you comfortable around them. You're comfortable being with them because there's a sharing of some commonality. And that's the thing that David is pointing at here. If I'm going to be in God's presence and I'm going to enjoy His presence and I'm going to enjoy being there and He's going to enjoy having me there, then there's got to be some commonality. You following what's going on here? Why is it that God has to make us perfect to be in heaven? Because He's perfect and there's no way that His perfection can coexist compatibly with imperfection. Following what's going on here? So in order for us to be in heaven, we've got to be like Him. And that's, the whole, that's redemption, folks. That's what redemption is. Redemption is restoring the shattered relationship that Adam had in the garden and making us like God. You're going to be made like Jesus Christ. You're not going to be able to sin. You're not going to be able to follow it up. And you're in heaven, you're going to be able to enjoy God's presence without worrying about some imperfection because you're going to share the same character that he has. You're not going to be God, but you're going to share the same moral character. And that's what David is getting at here. He's not going to give us an exhaustive list of things, but he's going to say, if you want to be in God's presence, if you want to enjoy God's company, if you want to go over to God's tent, or you can by extension say, who does God like to hang around with? The question is, God likes to hang around with people who are like Him, just like you hang around people who are like you. You've all been in those social situations where you have absolutely zero zilch, nothing in common with the people you're around. You feel out of place, don't you? You feel like you don't belong there. You don't fit in. And that's what David is talking about here. Well, what kind of people is this? What, what, What kind of person can enjoy God's presence? Well, he who walks
1: blamelessly
0: and does what is right.
1: Speaks the truth from his heart. Yeah,
0: what does it mean to walk blamelessly? Well, I mean, since I mean, theoretically, here, right? The idea here is you're not perfect, but that you certainly. Have exercised yourself as, it, as the New Testament says on the godliness. Right? You're not you're not walking around with any known area of gross sin or unconfessed sin. It's not that you're faultless any more than the New Testament elder is faultless. It's not talking about you know if a man be an elder he has to be f- blameless. Well, it doesn't say faultless. I'm glad of that because nobody qualifies. Faultless level, but you can be blameless. In other words, you can live your life in such a way as to not have any overt, standout sin in your life. If your name comes up and someone says, Yeah, you know, Schaefer's a great guy, but boy, you know, he has a horrid temper. You're not blameless. Schaefer's a great guy, but, you know, he sells these dirty jokes now and then. Oh, he's not blameless. All right, that's the point that's getting in here. And, and the idea of speaking truth in your heart, what do you think it means to speak truth in your heart? Your motives are pure, and you have a, a correct view of what? God. Not of God, but also of yourself. We deceive ourselves, don't we, in our heart? We, we like to think, well, you know, if I had the spiritual meter, I'm probably uh, 50 out of 100. No, you're probably more like a 2 out of 100. We like to deceive ourselves, don't we? We like to think of ourselves as better than we really are. We cut ourselves an awful lot of slack, don't we? And um, the one who dwells in God's presence has a good understanding of who he is, of what he is, and understands the deceitfulness of his own heart and doesn't cut himself slack in that area. He doesn't act like, oh, well, it doesn't matter if I have this little thing over here. Yes, it does matter. What we do in our our day and age, we compartmentalize sin very well, don't we? We think God grades on a curve. You know, well, see, I go to church, I read my Bible, I pray. Okay, so I, you know, have a little bit too much to drink now and then. So what big deal? I got nine of the ten okay. And we compartmentalize that. And that's why it's interesting when you see, you know, you find a man who's fallen into immorality, a pastor's fallen into immorality. You say, what happened? Well, you know, he had a bunch of areas, okay, but then there's this one area that was not paid attention to and that disqualifies you all over. God doesn't grade on a curve. And the man who speaks truth in his heart, is the, and, or woman who speaks truth in her heart, is the one who doesn't cut themselves a lot of slack, who sees what they really are, understands their frame, and freely admits that to God. I mean, that's the real thing. Does God know what you're like? Yeah, so why do you try to fake Him out? Or we think we fake him out, don't we? You can't do that. Pardon? Yeah, it's humility. It's realizing who you really are. And God can hang around with people who recognize their sinfulness and recognize it, their evil and, and, and seek his forgiveness, but he can't stand people who don't need it. Look at the Pharisees. What was the problem with the Pharisees? I'm reading a new book now, The Jesus You Can't Ignore. You need to get that. John MacArthur, The Jesus You Can't Ignore.
1: Yeah, the Jesus you can't ignore.
0: And uh, it shows Jesus hung around with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners. And he didn't hang around with the religious muckety-mucks. Why? They didn't think they needed any help. Look at the story of the tax collector and the publican, right? Or a tax collector and a Pharisee. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One man a Pharisee, another a tax collector. And what did the Pharisee do? He prayed to who? You ever say, who did he pray to? Remember the text? He prayed to himself. He never prayed to God. It doesn't say he prayed to God. There, He prayed to himself and said, God, I'm thankful that I'm not like other people. I'm not... Uh, you know, an adulterer. I'm not a murderer. I'm not like that guy over there pointing to the tax collector, who wasn't even allowed into the temple. Quite honestly, he had to be outside the temple. And what did the tax collector do? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. A sinner. And Jesus said, that man went down justified, not the other. Why? Because he admitted it. To speak truth in your heart means that you admit to God clearly and honestly your sin. You don't cover it up. You don't make excuses for it. You speak truth about it. And then God can forgive you. Psalm, or Proverbs 28.15 He that covers his sin shall not prosper, but who confesses and forsakes it will find mercy. God knows what you are anyways. Why try to cover it up to somebody who can see right through it? It doesn't make any sense. Just be honest with God. So God wants to hang around people who are honest about who they are and understand who they are. And that's why Jesus could hang around the tax collectors and the publicans and the sinners. Because they would recognize their sin. The woman who came in and broke the box and cried and washed Jesus' feet with her hair and wiped it with her hair, a prostitute, she understood her sin. The Pharisee who had him over for dinner didn't think he needed anything. God hangs around people who recognize who they are. And then it says, And who does not slander with his tongue and does not know evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend. God likes to hang around people who are not gossiping about other people, right? Why, Why is that? Think about it. Why does God not need you to tell Him about somebody else? He knows everything. He doesn't. You're not informing him of anything. You're not informing him. And, and I, I've had this in my own life. I've, I've had friends in the past that, you know, when I went around them, all they would do sometimes just talk about everybody else. And after a while, it's just like, you know, I'm out of here. I don't need this. I don't want to go over and have, you know, a gossip session. I, I don't really want that. And what, what the psalmist is saying is God does not like to hang around people who all they want to do is talk and slander somebody else. You want to slander somebody else, God's not going to enjoy your company. Because God doesn't need to know about the sins and faults of others. He knows that. You're not informing Him of anything. And it says here, who does no evil to his neighbor and does not take up a reproach against his friend, God hangs around people who are loyal to their neighbor. Who do, who, they're not doing evil things to their neighbor. It's not sufficient to say, um, I worship God, but I don't need to really pay attention to other people. What, is, what, is, what are the two great commandments? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind and strength. Love thy neighbor as right thyself. So here's the question. If you love God, you're going to love that which God loves. And what does God love? people yeah you're gonna love that which god loves and that's the kind of people god wants to be with do you do you share the same heart that i have do you care for your neighbor because i love your neighbor do you care for your neighbor and john asked that remember first john he says how can you say you love God, whom you can't see, if you don't love your brother, whom you can see? You're a liar. God. Well, it's yeah, but but the point is you love them. The point is that we have a concern for other people, right? Because mm-hmm. Christ had a concern for them. We have to have a concern for them. We can't, take up, we can't slander. We can't do evil. And we can't take up a reproach against our neighbor. We, we can't be dragged into petty disagreements. Boy, I've, had, I've faced that. You know. And, and Christians are good at this. Christians are really good at this. I'll never forget the phone call I had one time from somebody who wanted me to go and confront David Walls about something. This is when David was here. Why don't you do something? And the question I asked him is, "So, well, did you go talk to him yet? No, I'm not going to do that. Then why do you want me to do that? I'm not going to take up your fight. I'm not going to fight your battle. If you have some beef, you go talk to the guy first. Don't call me and want me to go do it. But see, we're good at that. Don't get dragged. I mean, that's the Matthew 18 principle, right? If you have a problem with a brother, you go one-on-one that doesn't work, then you take someone else. that doesn't work, then you take the church. We don't do that in Christianity. We want somebody else to go fight the battle for us. Look, don't get dragged into somebody else's squabbles. You don't need that. God wants to be with people who are not looking for fights, who are not being dragged into petty disagreements, who are not slandering their, their fellow person, who are not taking up evil and doing evil things to other men. I mean, that's the whole point that Jesus Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount. If you come to your altar and you bring your gift and you remember that someone has something against you, stop, leave your gift, go get reconciled, then come back. And I think sometimes with Christians, one of the reasons that maybe we don't feel as close to God as we should or somehow we feel that there's some issue between us and God is because we have issues with other people that we've not resolved. And God is saying, leave your gift. Go reconcile yourself to that person, if possible. Now, the, the underlying idea there is, if possible. Then come back and offer your gift. God wants to hang around with people who don't treat their neighbors badly. And in whose, verse four, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. What does that mean? That means that you hate what God... Hates. Now, be careful here. This is not saying that we're to hate the sinners, right? That's not what it's saying. We hate the sin, don't we? Now, I'm going to step on toes here, but I think one of the ways in which, sin, which Christians really violate this a lot is what kind of entertainment do you watch? Do you watch TV shows that exalt sinful behavior do you take enjoyment and pleasure in that why any christian would watch desperate housewives is beyond me why would you watch simpsons is beyond me why would you watch fornicate i mean friends it's beyond me and yet there are christians that know more about friends and know more about desperate housewives and know more about that stuff than they know about the Word of God. Look, if you love God, you're not going to fill your brain and fill your mind and fill your heart with the escapades of people who despise God and despise His commandments and despise Him. That's not being holier than thou. You understand that. That's not the point here. That's not what, what's being said here. It's not the holier-than-thou attitude. It's that I'm going to honor those who honor God, and I'm not going to honor those who do not honor God. I'm not going to exalt them. And yet Christians, you know, especially in the entertainment industry, you know, you go look at keep a track of what you watch on your television screen and see if it convicts you. There there shows that you have no business as a Christian watching, none. And yet, Christians watch this and they scratch it and say, You know, I just don't feel close to God. I don't, you know, I just feel cold. I, I feel He's distant. I, I don't feel a, a connection. Well, of course, you're not going to feel a connection. Because you're dragging God into And I'm just using this as an example, folks. That's the point. The point here is you're going to like those things and love those things that God loves, you're going to despise those things that God despises because you love him. It's the same thing in a relationship. With if, if if you love your wife and someone is mistreating your wife, how do you respond to that? Hopefully, because you love her, you're not going to be palsy-wowsy with people who hate her. Does that make any sense? You, and, and if somebody treats your wife Well, you're going to like them. It's like your kids, right? It's the same thing with your kids. It's the same thing in human relationships. And what God is saying here is, I want to hang around with people who share my heart and share my values and share my attitudes and share my moral perfections, who hate sin and love righteousness. And yet many Christians today, we're so busy enjoying the pleasures of this world and the entertainment of this world that we lose that it doesn't mean throw your tv out it just means think about what you're watching and think about what is that doing to your spiritual life and is that activity honoring or dishonoring to the lord and i think there's some no-brainer things that you can come up with that you have no business watching you just don't and and again, over the years, my toleration for a lot of this stuff has gone has been dropping off the cliff to the point that there are a few movies that I even want to see. There was a day when I watched them, but not anymore. Because I'd rather be in God's presence than in the presence of that stuff. And then it says here, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. What does it mean? Huh?
2: Oh, oh I was saying I was thanking you for that detailed explanation of what some people so literally fall out of their mouth. Garbage the joke, garbage. Which in its basic thing is true. But I don't think they really think about
0: why. hmm And that's all that you just said is why. It says here, Swears to his own hurt and does not change. What does that mean? What do you
2: think that means? That means that if you get hammered
1: for something,
0: that you're not going to take it, you know, and use it against anybody else,
2: you just going to take a piece of something and like that. You're
0: not going to you
2: know, retaliate. Mm-hmm. Any other ideas of what that means? No. Well, sometimes
1: we're ostracized, too, because we're
0: what does it mean to swear to something in the Old Testament?
1: Covenant. Making a promise.
0: Yeah. So God hangs around people who don't do what?
1: Break their promises. Uh-huh.
0: If you swear to your own hurt, what does it mean to swear to your own hurt? You make a covenant and then you find out, wait a minute, that's going to really cost me. I I gave him my word. I'm going to go through with it. I'm not going to change. What's the point here? God hangs around people who keep their word, right? How many times do we make promises and we just break them and not think anything of it? Oh yeah, I'll do that. And then you find out all of a sudden, whoa, wait a minute, that's a lot more work than I thought. I'm out of here. I've had that happen in ministry. I remember... In my prior life, I used to run the Iwana program here. And I had people come up and say, Yeah, you know, I'll be a leader. I'll, I'll serve there. They're in there two weeks, then they're gone. I said, no, no, wait a minute. You said you're going to be here. Well, you know, it's a little bit more work than I thought it was. And blah, 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 blah. Look, you gave me your word. Don't, don't tell me here that God's leading you somewhere else. That, that's the thing they do, see. Well, God's leading me somewhere else. No, God's not leading you somewhere else. You're lying to me and you want to blame God for your lying. You made a covenant. You made a promise. You said you were going to do something. And that was something very important in the Old Testament, right? What did Christ say? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. 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 Keep your word, that's all. God hangs around with people who keep their word. And, that, 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 and by the way, I think that that carries over in our, our day and age a lot of times. How many Christians do you know that don't pay their bills on time? Let's talk about that one. You take out a loan and you don't pay it on time. What are you doing? Now, I'm not talking here about situations outside of your control, loss of job, catastrophe. We're not talking about that. That's not, that's not in view here. We're talking about just irresponsible behavior. There's a problem there. I've known men who financially could not manage their way out of a wet paper sack. With instructions. They 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 never were able to pay their bills on time. They didn't think it was a big, fat, hairy deal. You know, well, you know, God wants me to pay my bills, he give me more money. Wait, wait, stop. What did God what's it say here? An evil man borrows and pays not again. What's so tough about that? Proverbs. I don't know where it is in Proverbs, it's Proverbs. If you make a commitment, don't make a commitment if you can't keep it, right? That's the point. Keep your word. Be honest. Even if if you have to eat hot dogs and
1: potatoes, potatoes,
0: keep your word. There used to be a day in America where that was important. It's not that important anymore. I'm sorry? I
1: was listening to something the other day, and a person was talking
2: about how they felt that they, the God had called them to serve, stay in the nursery. Mm hmm. So they go, they make a commitment, they're going to do this, they're going to be there, or whatever, and then they find out, you know what, I I don't like kids, okay, Okay. this is not something that, you know, I don't know what I was thinking, you know, but I was like wrong. (laughs) This is an example. So you just stay there because you've made a commitment, or do you say, you know what, this, I was wrong.
0: In that case, what you do is you would negotiate with the person you made a commitment to. And it may be that you would tell them, say, you know, I really want to do this, but, you know, I'm not comfortable with kids. Do you have any suggestions? And they might release you from that commitment. If they don't, you stick it out. Do you understand the idea here is you stick it out? Even if it hurts, you you do it. Um, Because that's what God... And that's why, for example, the Bible says you better be very careful before you make a commitment. Because God expects you to keep it. You make a promise. And why is that? Because how many promises has God kept? All of them. And God expects you to keep all of them. So before you make a promise to someone, you think about it. Here's another one. You know, the idea here. In, in, on time... Right? You say somebody, you know, I'll, I'll be there at nine o'clock and you show up at nine 15, 9.30. Now, excluding things like flat tires and and stuff like that, as a Christian, what should you be on time? Or early?: Yeah. Mm-hmm. What would you do if you know Jim Minley you know showed up at nah, you know ten o'clock? He's supposed to preach at nine forty-five. You know, I nah, got late. You know, got hung up. You know, so overslept this morning, and we're all sitting there in the service twiddling our thumbs waiting for the pastor to show up. But yet we do that all the time, don't we? By the way, this is not giving a hard time to anybody in the class who comes in. Late, that's not what I'm doing here. I'm just saying, in my particular case, I have a class to teach that starts basically at 9.20, which means i got to be here. I can't be on my way here. Now, maybe I'll have a flat tire someday. Maybe something will come up and I will be prevented from being here. That's different. We're not talking about those things. But the idea of keeping your word and, and being a person of integrity, Just if you say, tell somebody, I'm going to be there to do this, be there. If I'm going to go here, I'm going to do that. If I say I'm going to help you do this, I'm going to help you do that. Or, don't say it. Don't make the commitment. Don't sign up for the prayer vigil at 5 a.m. and not show up. If you sign up for 5 a.m., you be here. Or don't sign up. going to pick your kid up at 945 be there at 945 or whatever be there be on time make it a point well you know I got spiritually way late no don't go there (laughs) don't go there be a person of your word be a person because listen that's the kind of people God wants to hang around with people who keep their word people who say they're going to do something and follow through on it and don't just say yeah here's another way we lie about this all the time I'll pray for you. Yeah, right. And you forget all about the person when they're out of sight, right? If you tell somebody you're going to pray for them, what should you do? Pray for them. Or don't him tell them. At least be honest enough not to tell them you're going to pray for them if you don't. I
1: was guilty of that not too long ago, saying, I'll pray for you, and then I guess I wouldn't. So I started praying for them
0: right on the box. Yeah, i pray for them right there. You know, or say, I'll pray if you lay it, write it down. Write it on your hand, you know, notebook, something. At whole point, look, David is trying to get across this idea. God hangs around people who are like him. What is God like? God keeps his word. God is faithful. God loves righteousness and hates evil. Do you love righteousness and hate evil? God does not slander. Do you slander? God does not do evil to his neighbor. Do you do evil to your neighbor? God hangs around with people who are like him, who share his heart, who share his attitudes, who share his character. That's the people God enjoys being around. And if you want God to be around you and enjoy your company, then you've got to be this. And if you're not this, then God doesn't, it hurts God to be around you. Yeah, uh,
2: I was about, like you like, said about the prayer thing it's funny on, on Facebook this week I had said does anyone need prayer I'll pray for you and so I had the people on there saying yeah you know pray for this or that or the other and so I would go like check it like every couple hours you know, to mm-hmm. know and then I would say okay got it you know or whatever and it's like I even took me the paper and I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget you know but I wanted to keep in touch with them too so maybe just like for people like just that and say, hey, I want let you know I paid for you. you know, mm-hmm. not that like making me feel good?
0: Like, thank you. you know? Yeah. Be a person of your word. Be a be integri- be person of integrity. Um, who does not put out his money at interest. What does that mean? You're not allowed to put your money in the bank and earn 2% on it? No. If, if somebody is in need and they need a loan, you give them the money or you don't. You don't give them the money and charge 20% interest on it. That was the Israelite law. You were not allowed to lend to another Jew and charge interest. Usury. And by the way, the usury laws are out of, this, out of control in America. You realize that. Talking to a lady who was paying over 35% interest on her credit card, she'd never pay it off. She'd never be able to pay it off. You know, there's no, but as Christians, don't take it, The idea here is don't take advantage of people who are in need. I mean that's the point, right? That's when you boil it down, you strip off the layers. If you see a brother in need and you have the means whereby to help them, help them. Now understand what is in view here. It's not that we just go around and dole our money out right and left. Because there are other passages of the Bible that talk about personal responsibility and things like that. But what he's talking about here is somebody has a legitimate need. It's not a want. It is a need. And you have the means to help them. Help them and don't charge interest. Help them out. Because what does God do? God helps us out every day, doesn't He? Does He charge you interest? No. Mm -mm. He helps us out. He doesn't put out his money in usury. And he does not take a bribe against the innocent. What does that mean? He can't be bought off. This is one of their requirements, by the way. If you go back, interestingly, to um, Jethro. Remember who Jethro was? Not Jethro Bodine on um, whatever. Yeah. Moses' father-in-law, right? Jethro shows up. And Moses is having trouble because he's trying to manage... 2 million people and it's not working. And Jethro says, well, why don't you get yourself 70 godly men who can help you? And what was one of the requirements? Well, go back and look at Exodus 19. I think it is 18 and 19. And one of the requirements was someone who could not be bribed. Why is that? Well, if you're in a position of authority over someone, it's naturally to defer to the high and mighty and not to the low and poor, right? Right? God hangs around with people who cannot be bought off. God hangs around with people who cannot have their judgment swayed by material gain. It doesn't matter. Think about this. Are you somebody who treats everybody the same, whether they are rich or whether they are poor? I mean, that's what James says, right? You have a church and some guy, it says a gold-ringed man comes in. And what do you do? You give them the best seat in the house, and then some poor old beggar, stinking, ugly person comes in, and you tell them to go sit under your footstool. You're partial. Is God partial? I'm glad God isn't partial, because He's chosen a lot of riffraff, hasn't He? Us being one of them. God hangs around with people who can't be bought off, who can't have their judgment swayed by external pressure. Who sees right as right and wrong as wrong, regardless of the personal status of the person? And then it says, He who does these things shall never be moved. What do you mean by that? What does it mean to be moved? From where? Well, what was the question? Who can go into God's presence? Who can dwell in His holy hill? Well, here's the requirements, and if you do these, you can't be moved from what? From His presence.
2: four or five different things that I wanna have done and I said it to God. I made a commitment to him. And our Just figuring and out now. know. But anyways um they have to be in his time too, doesn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you make a commitment to God that you're gonna do something and it's in his time that he's gonna convict you to do it, Mm-hmm. Best. Yeah so whatever I asked for a long time ago before all this started happening is now. Now I just gotta figure out what he wants me to do. But how do you go about finding out what the heck you're supposed to do if you don't know?
0: Ask him for wisdom. God wants you to do it the right thing is more than you want to do that. So Two weeks ago I off I got a walker. I come around. Yeah, he tried to ra- chase me down or she wanted me to race her down the hallway. <laughs> <You know.
1: laughs>
0: the the point the point here that um we're trying to make by looking at this song. Sin is the violation of relationship. That's what it is. It's it's That relationship, now, it it goes beyond. That relationship is founded by certain commandments that God has given us. We know what those are. So I'm not saying that the sin is not violating one of the Ten Commandments. Of course it is. But at the root of that is not as much the list as it is the attitude, as it is the relationship. It's not the violation of a code, it's the violation of my relationship with God. When I act in a manner contrary to His character, to His nature. And God says, I want relationship with people who understand that and who admit that. I mean, that's the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount starts out with the Beatitudes. Blessed are those that are poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means you come to God and realize you have nothing to offer. You're bankrupt. And not only that, what do you do next? You mourn over sin. Do you mourn over sin? Do you do you mourn over your own sin? That's the mark of a true believer. It's not someone who makes excuses. They mourn because they can't live up to the standard. And they come to God and, and, and seek His mercy. And it says, Blessed are, are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. How do you get pure in heart? Well, you're not going to pull it off on your own, are you? God's got to make you pure in heart. And how does God forgive you? How do you get forgiveness? You get forgiveness by admitting your sin, admitting your need, and asking God for His grace. That's, that's how you get it. You certainly don't earn it. It all goes to the heart. And that's what we see here. It's, it's, it's the attitude that's violating the nature and the character of God. Any questions on Psalm 15? it's just it's really important to understand what he's trying to get at now when you look at the New Testament there are two really words that come across as sin I I bring these out one is hamartia we get hamartiology from that that's the doctrine of sin and it means to miss the mark the idea there is you it it was really almost an archery term you know you pull the pull back and you let it go and you miss the target you miss the bullseye you miss the mark you you don't hit the target and sin is to miss the perfection of God it's to fall short of it it's to not quite get there and see that was this was the problem that the Pharisees had and what they did the way they solved this was very interesting what they did is they brought the target closer And then they moved across the line and got to a point where they could hit their supposed target. Do you follow what I'm saying there? They brought God down. They brought themselves up to a point where they could meet. They made themselves holier than they were. They made God less holy than He was so that there was a meeting that they could meet Him. Look, I can hit any bullseye with an arrow in the world. If I can stand an inch from it, I can hit it. Now, you put me 300 yards out, I might not even hit the target. But you move me up to the target, I can hit it. And that's what the Pharisees did. They moved the target so close that they could hit this thing. Then they pat themselves on the back saying, Oh, how holy and righteous we are. I mean, we, we make God happy. Yeah, yeah, we, we make God happy because we hit the target. Well, they had the wrong target. God's target is perfection. God's target is 100% absolute total perfection. Not only in what you do, but why you do it, your attitude. Now, I'll tell you what sometimes, folks. We may be able to do the right thing, but we do it for the wrong reason, don't we? And that's as much doing it in sin as it is to not do it at all. Hamartia means to miss the target. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've fallen short. Someone has said it's like uh, God's perfection is uh, anybody who can jump to the moon can be saved. And we can all line up in here and we can take our, our best jump. And some of us get a foot off the floor. Some of us get two feet off the floor. Some of us might not even get off the floor. But no one's going to jump to the moon. No one's going to hit that. We've all fallen short. And what we like to do is we like to pat ourselves and say, well, I can jump two feet you can only jump one foot. Well, that doesn't matter because the target is the moon. It's not, it's not with each other. It's the moon that we, we miss it. And then there's parabasis. The idea of parabasis is you... Step over the line. You go a little bit too far. You stretch it. You go over the line. James 2.11, 1 John 3, four. this word is used. To step over the line. All of us have stepped over the line. All of us have gone too far. And what God is saying is that the standard is that, one, you never step over the line. Two, you hit the target all the time, every time, never miss. It's not that you hit the target once in a while. You hit the target all of the time. Because what does James 2.11? Whoever keeps the whole law and yet offends in, one point he's guilty of all. God does not grade on a curve. The, the, the standard for God is perfection. So where did sin come from? We talked about this a little bit, so we're not going to spend a ton of time on it. In the universe, it came in the heart of Satan. Where did sin start? It started in his heart. Remember? You said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I'll exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds I will be like the Most High. That's the, I the I wills of Isaiah 14. What did Satan do? Satan didn't sin by starting a rebellion, Satan sinned by thinking in his heart. And what was the sin of Satan? I'm not going to do what God wants, I'm going to do what I want. It's an exaltation of my will over God's will. And, and maybe that's one way to think of sin, a facet of sin, is I sin when I, when I assert my will over God's will. And how is that the violation of a, of a relationship? Well, I'm basically telling God, if I do that, what am I telling God? I can do better than you. I, do than you. I don't trust you. I'm not sure what you said is right. In fact, I, I think there's two right answers here. You have one, I have one, and mine's just as good as yours, and I'm going to do my own thing. It's not trusting God. That's what Eve did. I mean, Eve basically said, "I don't." Ultimately, in her heart, she said, "Well, maybe God is holding out on me. Maybe, you know, maybe he's not. uh, Maybe he's not all he said he was. Maybe the serpent is right." And she took that fruit and ate it. But notice what it says here: sin occurred in the universe in the heart of Satan long before it ever manifests itself in the rebellion that we see today. It's the thought and heart. And therefore, listen, this is very important. In your life, sin occurs in your heart long before you do it. Long before you do it. We think only of sin in terms of actions because we see those, right? That's how the Pharisees had it pegged. The Pharisees said, well, you sin when you commit adultery. Yeah, that's true. But what did Christ say in Sermon on the Mount? When you think about it. Sin occurs when you think about it. Not when you do it. Um, the Pharisees said, you know, you murder somebody when you stick a knife in them and they're dead. What did Christ say? You murder someone when you hate them. The point is this. Christ is saying sin occurs in the heart long before it shows up. And what did Christ say? He said out of the heart comes wickedness, adultery and fornication and murder. It's out of the heart. It's the heart. In Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. It's the heart. So as a Christian, what do you need to focus on? Your heart. And what we do is we want to clamp down on the external things. Look, it's your heart attitude. And that's why, you know, it goes back to, when we talked a little earlier about this entertainment kind of thing. Garbage in, garbage out. You fill your brain with the entertainment of this world and it's going to ooze out. It's going to come out. You can't do that and not have it come out because it's the heart where the real battle lies. And although you may have never murdered somebody, you may have never taken a life, you murder with your words, you murder in your attitudes, you murder in your heart. And though some of you may have never committed adultery, you've certainly done it in your heart. And although you may never have stolen technically, you certainly have done it in your heart. That's where the battle lies. And that's where it started in the universe. And then we talked about this in the world, where did sin come from? Well, it came from Eve and Adam eating the fruit. Saying basically, God, You're holding out on us. We don't trust You. You're lying to us. Now, the irony of this is what? How many times has God lied in, in the universe? Never. How many times has Satan told the truth? Never. So why do we believe Satan over God? right he says what we want him to say listen god's never lied do you trust god or do you trust the devil and yet oftentimes we go the latter not the former what did eve do even adam didn't trust god they didn't trust god's goodness they thought that they had a right to question his nature and his character And that led them down the inexorable path to the fall. Because they didn't believe what God said. They didn't trust God. And that's what we have to do. We have to trust God, folks. We have to believe what God has told us and trust Him. Prior to the fall of man, sin only only was in that spirit realm, right? But when Adam fell, what happened? Sin entered the world, Romans 5 and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sin. How do you know sin was in the world before the law? Well, everybody died, right? What does sin produce? Death. What happened between Adam and Moses? Everybody died, except Enoch. Everybody died. I was listening to Kirk Cameron talk about the Gospel. He's a Christian. You know that, right? Kirk Cameron? And uh, he said, he, he said, it, I realized that 10 out of 10 people die. And the question is, what happens afterwards? And that led him down his search for faith and his coming to Christ and being a, becoming a Christian. Um, folks, it, death entered the world through sin, through the fall of man. And of course, after the fall of man, Satan became the prince and power of the air. And man has become enslaved to sin. He's become enslaved to that nature of rebellion against God. And at the core, sin is rebellion. Sin is an exaltation of myself, my will, my wants over that of the Creator. That's what sin is. It's a focus on me. It's a focus on what I want. Not what God wants. Who cares what God wants? What do I want? It's all about me. What about the nature of sin? This is good. When you look at sin, it's not eternal. You have a lot of people today that scratch their head and say, well, if God is so good, why doesn't He fill it in? Why does He allow sin? If God is so good, you, you say God is good, that's the Rabbi Kushner problem. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, the problem is, is anybody good? No. So, the fact that a good thing happens to you is God's grace, not because you're innately good. That's the wrong question to ask. But a lot of people say, "Well, you know, if your God is so good He's so holy and so righteous, why doesn't He do something about sin? Why does He let these people run amok? Why does He let that mass murder kill twenty people? Why does He let those children starve to death in Bongo Bongo? Why does He bring that famine? Why does He do? Why does He do that? Why?" And, and say, so "Get all worked up and well, why doesn't God do something?" The answer is He is, and He will. Right? Is God doing something about sin? Absolutely, He is. Will He someday erase it from the universe? Yes, He will. But it's not on my schedule, is it? God is doing something. So when somebody asks you, well, why doesn't God do something about sin? You say, He is. He is doing something about sin. Someday it will be removed. We talked about heaven. And we talked about, if if you look at Revelation 21 and 22, there are two verses they talk about what's not in heaven and what not in, what's not in heaven is anything that defiles any sin. Outside of heaven are what? The the idolaters and the whoremongers and the liars and the thieves and the murderers. They all have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. They are outside the kingdom. In the eternal state, there will be no sin there. God will remove it. And the only place in the universe where sin will exist is in that place of torment, the lake of fire reserved for the devil and his angels. And not only that, there will be no possibility of sin ever re-entering the perfection. That's, to, that's what appeals to me. You know, streets of gold, good. Jerusalem, New Jerusalem, that's a good thing. River of life, wow, that'd be great. The ability not to follow it up, Priceless. Sounds like a commercial, right? The ability not to foul it up. Priceless. I will never be able to foul it up. I will never be able to sin. It will not, it will not be within my nature, my character, to foul it up. That's the appeal of nature. So, or, or, or salvation. So, it's not eternal. Someday God's going to erase this sin from the universe. That's why He creates the new heaven and new earth. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Why? Well, the first earth and first heaven are stained with what? Sin, corruption. God says, I'm not going to even try to run it. I'm just going to wipe it out, and we'll start over again. And John says, Behold, all things were new. The former things are passed away. That's the peel of heaven. You realize when you get to heaven, you can't mess it up. You won't want to mess it up, but it will not be within your power to mess it up. Because were it within your power to mess it up, what would happen? We would. We would. And someday in the far distant future, the only people who will be in heaven will be the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because eventually it would empty itself out. It won't be within our nature to sin. It's not merely the absence of good. What is sin? We think sin is the absence of good. Well, there's good and there's evil. That makes them a commodity, right? or something to be measured. Sin is not merely the absence of good. It's the presence of rebellion, the presence of evil, the presence of self-will, of self-exaltation, of the I will. I want. It's the heart. Sin has no standards of its own. It's only seen in relationship with good and evil. The idea of sin there is, how do we know what sin is? We know sin by contrast, do we not? Now, let's ask a question. Before eve fell did they know what sin was? No. Why not? They
1: were
0: perfect. <laughs> they were innocent. They had no contrast. Right. This is what makes heaven so glorious for us. You know know why you worship God for all of eternity? You know why you sing glory to the Lamb who slain and redeemed us? Because we understand what sin was. Because we were there. We all have a comprehension of what it means to have been lost and found. Sometimes some people ask, well, why is it, and we're going to talk about this when we get to election, the doctrine of election. Well, if, if God chose certain people to salvation and other people not, why didn't He just create everybody in heaven that would be there and everybody in hell would be there? And why do we have to go through time? Time is not for God's benefit, it's for our benefit, right? Because when we get to heaven, you're going to have a, an, an understanding of what it was like to be unredeemed, to, to be lost, to be without God, and to have His grace. Forgive you. And when you sing the song of the redeemed, you're going to mean it with a meaning that the angels have no comprehension of because they've never been there. And part of our eternal worship is the appreciation and the thankfulness and the praise to God for redeeming us that didn't deserve it. That's part of it. That's going to be the wonder of eternity. Why me? And we're going to praise God forever. And finally, we'll stop with this little point here. The problem with evil is it tries to disguise itself as good. I was talking to some people this week, and the question is, well, how is it? You know, I've visited the concentration camps in Germany, three of them, three of the worst places, Dachau, Buchenwald, and Mauthausen. Thousands and thousands of people died in these camps under the horrid conditions. And you stand there and you ask, how, how could this happen? And enlightened people like the German people, how could they allow something like this to exist? And the answer is very simple. They thought they were doing the right thing. They were convinced they were doing the right thing. What would allow a man to come out in the morning and stand as the trains rolled into Auschwitz and separate families and mother and children in this line, father over here, and the mother and children went right to the gas chambers and were dead within hours of arriving into camp? How could he do that? And then go off and have a picnic in the afternoon because he was convinced he was doing the right thing. I'm doing humanity a service by exterminating these vermin. That's how it works, folks. It's the theology of Star Wars. What caused um, Anakin to turn to the dark side? He thought he was doing the right thing. He was convinced that was the right and honorable thing to do. And that's why we have to have our barometers, our, our standards informed by the Word of God because if we let them be formed by the world, we're going to come up with the wrong standard. How do you get people to do evil? You make them think they're doing the right thing. You make them think that what they're doing is right and good and noble. And that's how the SS guards could, as a matter of their daily work, just slaughter millions and millions of people and think nothing of it and go to bed at night and sleep like a baby because they felt that they were doing the world a service. Evil disguises itself as good. It is deceitful. The deceitfulness of sin. And that's why we've got to be very careful to be informed by the Word of God, to be informed by the Holy Spirit, to ask God to uncover those sins in our lives and ask Him to expose our hearts for what it is because if not, we will deceive ourselves into thinking we're doing the right thing when in fact we're doing evil. And we won't pick it up. So, we'll pick up here next week. Because so if we keep going on this, I'm going to be here till noon. So, I don't want to do that. Father, thanks for this day you've granted to us. I pray that you would help us to ponder what we've learned today. Sober us, Father, to the reality of sin in our own lives and the need that we have to constantly seek your help, your assistance, your forgiveness, and the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit that we may be, amen and women of God in Christ's name amen
1: what was the third apostle that clearly book involved 5000 5000